welcome to a reading of Nye in February, the first book in the new Little Green Hill series from Extra Schooling. I had wanted to do an audio recording of this book because audiobooks are very important part of my son's life, and I wrote these books for him, and so I wanted to be able to include one that he can listen to as well, and I hope you enjoy it. Nye in February. Nye lived in a simple blue house outside of a quiet town. Winter was beginning to give way to the first hints that spring was coming, though the nights often still left a silvery frost behind. The buds on the tips of the dogwoods were swelling a little more each day, and the occasional bird began to twitter as it hopped from branch to branch. In the mornings, Nye would read to his mother as she sipped her coffee. Then he would help her sort through a stack of library books and paper she had drawn up the night before. He would wrinkle his nose as she held up a craft, then grab for an offered science project. Today, he chose a page of word problems, a field guide, his nature notebook, and a packet with which he could study native and invasive species. He finished his morning chores while his mother packed him some snacks for the day. Then he crammed everything into a backpack already brimming with sample jars, a net, binoculars, a magnifying glass, and various other gear that he liked to have along. He gave his mother a hug and headed out with a grin and a wave over his shoulder. Bye, Mama. His mother leaned against the door and smiled back. Have fun. I'll see you at dinner. What shall we have, pasta? I should say so, he laughed and scampered up the bank behind their house and through a small tunnel in the briars. Popping out the other side, he was in a thicket, brown and bent at this time of year. The tangled grasses caught his ankles every few steps, especially as he was forever preoccupied with looking up and around, watching the birds and squirrels dart about in their daily rounds, collecting seeds and chattering at each other about which tree belonged to whom. A stretch of woods greeted him on the far side of the field, followed by Little Green Hill, as he called it, and its winding dirt track leading up to the old abandoned house. It had become his favorite spot to spend his days. He had come here first when looking for a place to sled after an overnight snow over a year ago now. Much to his surprise, he had found the house was not as empty as he had thought. It was full of animals, and ones he could talk with at that. It was sunny, and the day was rapidly warming up as Nye crested the hill and reached the battered porch. He took a step up on it, then heard voices calling to him from a short ways off. He ambled down to the old garden and found the mice sitting on a rock beside the lilac bush, nibbling on the raisins he had brought them the previous day. "'What are you doing out here?' he asked in surprise. "'Columbus thought we needed to stretch our legs,' Bounder replied. "'We weren't quite as keen on it, but then we figured you'd be along soon enough, and it does feel nice to get warmed up a bit after how cold last week was.' "'February does tend to be a milder sort of month as a rule.' Tennyson said with a flourish of his paw. One must take advantage of these things. Columbus nodded enthusiastically, but Nibble seemed tense, crouched low with his whiskers quivering. It's just not natural, he said, when Nye checked to see if he was all right. Mice aren't meant for the wide open world. It's the garden, scoffed Columbus. Plenty of holes in other cover. Really, Nibble, where's your sense of adventure? Nibble trembled a little and blinked at him, but said nothing. Nye sat down beside them and let Nibble scoot into the palm of his hand. It's a perfect day to be out, but stay with me, he advised the young mouse, who gratefully settled on to his knee. Tennyson nodded toward Nye's pack. What are we learning about today? Above all things, Tennyson had a passion for gathering knowledge. He read to the other animals nearly every day and always had a fact to share or question to ask. His love of learning was why Nye had begun bringing his work along rather than getting it done ahead of time. 
Nye pulled out his math and set Tennyson on his shoulders so the mouse could get a better look. The two of them puzzled over each question, discussing how to approach it in hushed tones, then, at times, asking the others to use their dwindling supply of raisins as a sort of abacus to help them when they couldn't hold all the numbers in their heads at once. By lunchtime, they were finished with both the math and a list of spelling words that Nye's mother had slipped in his bag when he apparently hadn't been looking. Nye sprawled out on his stomach in the grass and divvied up his lunch between the five of them. The mice perched on their back legs and munched happily, beginning with their berries. Nye considered a strawberry with a raised eyebrow. These are nowhere near as good as the ones we grow in our garden. I can't wait until spring. The mice looked confused and stopped mid-chew. Whose are they? Bounder demanded. Did you steal them? Nibble gasped in shock. Nye laughed. No, they're from the store. The mice sat motionless, perplexed. Nye was always forgetting that just because they could talk, it didn't make them human, and thus they didn't understand some of the concepts that he took for granted. Certain foods, as you know, grow at certain times of the year, but not everyone grows their own food. Plus, people like to be able to eat food whenever they want, rather than waiting until the season when it can be grown. So people in one part of the world will grow a crop, and then it gets shipped to another place, and then a store sells it to whoever wants it. Tennyson's mind was obviously worrying. But if it can't be grown here, how can it be grown there? Where is there, anyway? The world is very big, I tried to explain, and it is tilted. So when one part of the world is tilted toward the sun, it is warmer there, but the other side is colder. Bounder, a keen mind in his own right, even if he didn't like to broadcast it as Tennyson did, stared at the house above them with a look of great concentration. So it's kind of like day and night then. In the morning, the sun shines in the front windows, and those rooms get warm. Then by the evening, the sun is coming in the back windows, and the kitchen is warmer. Yes, Nye nodded encouragingly. It's a lot like that. The world turns like this. He spun his apple in his hand, and it changes where the sun hits, see? The mice crane their necks for a better view. Where the sun is, it is daytime. Where there is shadow, it is nighttime. But we also revolve around the sun and at an angle. He tipped his apple slightly sideways and rotated it around a surprise nibble. So when the top here is close to our little nibble sun, it is hotter, which is summer, while the part on the bottom here is having winter. The mice were tentatively satisfied with this, barring a few questions that Nye did his best to answer. At last, the food was eaten, the science lesson concluded, and Tennyson was back to feeling confident enough to expound upon the subject. I dare say it won't be long before you'll be able to grow your own strawberries again, rather than have them floated to you over the ocean or wherever it is they come from. Why, I heard the wood frogs beginning to call just last night. Frogs? I asked. Feels nice today, but isn't it still rather early for them to be out? Isn't it cold last night? Ah, they don't care, Bounder said dismissively. They're made for it. They always start coming out around now. They don't hibernate long. I've read that in some areas they actually turn to ice in the winter, Columbus added with a shiver and a grin. Can you imagine that? Nye could not. No, thank you. So what are they doing now? This is when they lay their eggs, Bounder said. If you find you a puddle somewhere, you're liable to spot some. Just don't tell the salamanders if you do. They like to eat the slimy things. He gave a shudder at the thought and stuck out his tiny pink tongue. Nye dug out his field guide to investigate further. 
He found a map showing that the wood frogs lived across much of the eastern United States, almost all of Canada, and even up above the Arctic Circle, so long as it was an area with the habitat they needed, which, despite their name, turned out to be more than just woodland areas. Adults grew to be about the size of his hand and had a distinctive dark mask that made him think of a raccoon, though he felt bad for thinking that when he saw they were one of the wood frogs' predators, along with snakes, turtles, skunks, birds, foxes, and coyotes. He pulled out the animal packet his mother had made for him and flipped to a section on amphibians. Along the top, he first wrote their common name, then added their scientific name, Lithobatis sylvaticus, in parentheses. He pursed his lips to consider the name and looked at Tennyson. Doesn't lith usually have something to do with a rock? Like how Neolithic means New Stone Age and Paleolithic means Old Stone Age? I know Sylvan has to do with the forest. Tennyson peered at the name with him as well as at the picture of the frog in the field guide. Maybe it refers to its camouflage, as it rather looks like mossy rocks or bark. Perhaps it means animal in the woods that resembles a rock, or something similar. This seemed plausible to Nye, and he jotted down their rough translation and then did a sketch of the wood frog and its environment. The book says they lay their eggs in vernal pools, Nye told them. What is a vernal pool, and where would we find one around here? Do they mean those little calm spots along the creek? Oh, no, replied Columbus. They don't lay them in moving water. A vernal pool refers to a small bit of water that gathers in the spring, following the snow melting and such. Tennyson explained. Now, we don't get much snow around here, mind you, but the ground is damp enough this time of year that any bit of rain can produce a puddle here and there. Puddles? Nye repeated doubtfully. I've heard they're not terribly fussy, Tennyson assured him. As long as it's a little bit warm and a little bit wet, they're fairly well content. But you won't find any eggs quite yet. Right now, the frogs are chatting about their winter and picking partners. Give it a few more days, then go have yourself a tromp through the woods down below here along the side of the creek. And so that is exactly what Nye did. Following the sunny day in the garden, there were a handful of mild, drizzly days, so Nye was hopeful as he started out on the next clear morning. Up the bank, through the briars, and across the thicket he went again, but this time he turned left as he entered the woods rather than heading up to the house. He made his way through the mountain laurel and white pine until he could hear the creek coursing along in front of him. Then he turned again to follow it at a slight distance. The forest floor was a soft carpet of browning needles and other organic matter that was slowly being converted into rich dirt to supply the nutrients the trees, bushes, and fungi needed, a tidy circle of self-sufficiency and cooperation mingling underfoot. But while it made for excellent growing material, it was too spongy to hold water on its surface. So Nye eventually crossed the creek. There he found a field, and along its edges the evergreens gave way to the still leafless maples, oaks, and sassafras. The ground was soggy here, and Nye grew hopeful. An old, rutted dirt lane led out of the right side of the field, and Nye found a dip gently down and then back up again, creating just enough of a low spot to have gathered an enormous puddle, longer than he was tall and nearly too wide to jump across. As Nye approached, he saw mounds rising out of the center of the puddle. He jogged up excitedly, and there they were, three glistening piles, each containing vast amounts of translucent eggs, and each of those in turn harboring a tiny black dot no bigger than the head of a pin. Nye had been sure to carefully wash his hands before leaving home, but he still was concerned that he could harm them if he touched them. He gingerly reached out a finger to the edge of the first mound, 
The eggs were stuck fast to each other, creating a surprisingly solid mass, yet they reminded him of jelly. They felt not so much slimy as Bounder had said, but more slippery and jiggly. He crouched beside the puddle for quite a while, but none of the dots moved or showed any signs of life. He decided to come back each day and log in his nature journal what he saw. He wrote down his observations for the day and then headed back through the field over the creek and off to the house on the hill. For the next few days, his notes were sparse. Nothing changed, even one bit. He had read more about them when he got home that first evening after finding the eggs and was amazed to learn just how many there could be. Hundreds in each mound, quite possibly a thousand or more in all. On the seventh day, he noticed a slight change at last and wrote in his journal, The dots have unrolled and look like tiny slugs, but they are still inside their eggs. On the twelfth day, he scrawled exuberantly, Some have hatched. I couldn't find the tadpoles at first, but I sat very still for a long time, and then I saw something wiggle at the bottom of the puddle. I found them hiding in the leaves and dirt. Within a couple of days, most all of the eggs had hatched. The egg casings, once so clear and shiny, lay in crumpled, dirty heaps throughout the puddle. Some of the tadpoles seemed to be taking bites out of them here and there, but others ignored them and spent their time poking through the decaying plant matter that lay along the puddle bottom. On the twentieth day, Nye raced to the puddle. The night had been much colder again, and to his horror, the puddle was entirely and solidly iced over. While he knew the adult frogs were part of a special group of animals called extremophiles, creatures that could withstand extreme environments and conditions such as caves, deep freezes, searing heat, and even space, these tadpoles, only about the size of a grain of rice, seemed so incredibly fragile. He peered frantically through the swirls and bubbles patterning the ice. He thought he saw a tiny flicker of movement at the bottom and he tapped on the ice. Hello, he called. Hello? Are you okay in there? He felt a little silly for doing this, though he wasn't quite sure why. He talked to the animals at Little Green Hill all the time and had come to find it natural. Yet part of him felt the place itself held a certain magic that made it possible. Out here he felt a bit too far removed and was glad that no one could see him speaking to a frozen puddle. Nye returned the following afternoon after the day had warmed up enough that the puddle was mostly ice-free. He knelt beside it and anxiously scanned the bottom, examining every dark speck. There, a movement, a small shape ducking out from under a sunken oak leaf. You're okay, Nye cried with relief. The tadpole paused and seemed to look up at the boy, letting his tail dangle straight down in the water. After a moment, he wriggled his body like an eel and swam closer to the edge where Nye sat. Nye heard a very tiny sound, and he leaned down as close as he could get, nearly dipping his nose in the puddle. The voice was only barely audible. We're okay. Why were you tapping on the ice yesterday? That is very loud down here and scared a lot of us. Oh, Nye said. I didn't think of that. I'm sorry. I was just worried you were frozen in there. We're fine, the tadpole responded. The ice helps insulate us when it gets very cold, and then we burrow down into the mud to protect ourselves. Oh, Nye repeated. What about the other eggs? Will they still hatch? Probably not, the tadpole said. Not all of them do. But it's not because of the ice. It just works that way sometimes. That's why our mother lays so many eggs. Plus, we're food for a lot of creatures. Nye had to admire how matter-of-fact the tadpole was. He has such a resilient nature for such a young and tiny being. What's your name? he asked. Trooper. The tadpole replied, puffing himself up, and Nye found the name quite fitting for the brave youngster. 
Where are your parents? Oh, I don't know, Trooper said. They don't provide for us. We find our own way once our egg is laid. How long can you live in this puddle? I wanted to know next. It doesn't seem like very much water. It's not, Trooper admitted, but at least there aren't any fish, or none of us would make it to be real frogs. There aren't a lot of choices for where to leave us, really. This is about as safe a place as we could ask for. Nye visited Trooper nearly every day. The tadpoles slowly got bigger and bigger. The old egg sacs broke down and disappeared, and the little ones spent their days munching on leaves and algae and growing bit by bit. It took over two months for the first of the tadpoles to sprout back legs. They appeared all of a sudden, like little balloons that had just been waiting to be blown up. The youngsters were much bigger now, around two inches long. Are you afraid of metamorphosis? I asked Trooper one day. Trooper paddled over to a leaf with his new back feet. Are you afraid of growing? Growing is different than metamorphosis, I argued. I don't change how I move or breathe. True, the tadpole admitted, but it's just as natural a process, and it's not like I have any control over it. And so far, I'm finding it pretty fun to have feet, though it takes some getting used to. I think it'll be even better when I get my front ones, so I'll be more balanced out. What does it feel like when your legs pop out? Is it fast? Oh, yeah. It hardly takes any time at all. I don't know, really. It's kind of a whoosh, and then it's hard to explain. It's suddenly like you fit your skin better, because there's more room for the rest of you. It took several more weeks for Trooper's front legs to appear and his gills to be replaced by lungs, graduating him to the level of official froglet. He began crawling up on the edge of the puddle or on a floating piece of bark to chat. This made conversations much easier, as the water no longer muffled his voice. Nye's tales of his visits had piqued the curiosity of the mice. Well, all except for Nibble, and he brought them to visit on several occasions, though the nervous young mouse preferred to sit in his shirt pocket for the entire trip. Columbus enjoyed their excursions the most, though. He spent more time exploring the surrounding woods than chatting with the tadpoles. Bounder, meanwhile, quickly became a favorite of the tadpoles, entertaining them with slightly embellished tales of various escapades from his life. He would act out a daring escape from a hungry snake as they watched, wide-eyed from the water. Tennyson was thoughtful enough to have Nye bring along the frog and toad treasury for him to read aloud. To encourage their growth in both mind and body, he declared grandly. Trooper's tail shrunk a little more every day until it finally disappeared entirely, and Nye found him perched on the bank above the puddle with several of his brothers and sisters, all looking like miniature adult frogs and seeming very pleased with themselves. Wow, I exclaimed, you're all grown up now. Well, not quite, Trooper said. It'll actually take another year or two for me to be considered an adult, and the girls have even longer to wait. I'm done with the puddle, though. It's been awfully warm and dry lately, so I doubt it'll be much more than sludge here soon. I hope everyone else makes it out before then. Nye glanced at the puddle and saw that about a third of the tadpoles were still swimming around in various stages of development, some without even front legs yet. I hope so, too. He turned back to Trooper. So, what are you going to do now? Trooper used a glistening toe to rub his snout and then looked up at the boy with a gleam in his eye. I was wondering, would any of you care for a new neighbor over at Little Green Hill? I'm rather keen to see it by now, with all I've heard so far. Nye's face broke into a wide grin. I think we could spare a spot for you somewhere. 
He dug in his bag for a collection jar, added some mud and damp moss to keep the young frog skin moist, and then held it over to Trooper, who hopped smartly inside with obvious pride. Let's go! A note from the author. This may be a work of fiction, but there's a lot of truth inspiring the details in this story. For starters, my son has always had a close attachment with the animal world, and I affectionately referred to him as the animal whisperer, as sometimes it does indeed seem like he can communicate with them. We also have a joint love of old abandoned houses, and the house in this story comes out of my imaginings of a personal favorite. Little Green Hill, meanwhile, is what we call our property, a nod to a poem by E.E. E. Cummings that I have held dear my entire life. And the mice? Yep, they're real too. We live out of town and deer mice are regular visitors. We bought a live trap in order to relocate them one winter and Columbus was the very first, followed by 51 others. There came a point, several weary months later, I began to question if these were truly all different mice, as it seemed the farther afield we released them, the longer it took to catch another. I did some research and discovered deer mice have an impressive homing instinct coupled with the ability to travel substantial distances. We did catch two at once one time, but we were never quite sure if we truly had 52 that season or merely two we caught 26 times. Once we took a couple a good mile away, however, that was that, at least until the following winter. Last but not least, Trooper is a real frog. We live on a dirt road that culminates in the woods of a state park. The final driveway is shady and has a dip where a large puddle stays a substantial portion of the year. Right around February 15th, we can expect to walk out and find three mounds of freshly laid eggs. Being a driveway, this is not a very safe spot, and so we have indeed collected eggs each year. Trooper was the very first to make it to adulthood after a steep learning curve on our part in terms of raising them. He was a tiny specimen when he suddenly hopped out on the moss in his terrarium one day, a beautifully masked replica of his parents, but no bigger than my smallest fingernail. I felt maternal pangs releasing him back at the puddle, both proud and scared for him, so small and alone. We are old pros by now, however, and last year we released a swarm of perhaps 50 after a few months of having them as part of the family. I so enjoyed mornings on the porch with them in early spring, my feet propped on their stand, drinking my coffee as we all sunned ourselves. We watched their features develop until they could crawl right up the glass and their tails disappeared. It is nearly that time again, which inspired me to have Nye get acquainted with these striking creatures we are fortunate enough to share a forest with. Be responsibly curious. It is important to note that wildlife, by and large, should be left alone and treated with the utmost respect for the fact it is indeed just that, wild. With that being said, my personal stance is that one must first care in order to conserve. And what do we care most about? the things that are near and dear to us, the things that are ingrained in our hearts and stamped on our souls. If nature is strictly look but don't touch, it can be hard to gain that intimate connection necessary to care for it properly. I practice a philosophy of responsible curiosity. Tear apart this rotting stump, flip rocks in this little section of stream, capture this bug in your net for closer observation, and leave the rest in peace. Raising Wood Frogs as mentioned in my author's note, the eggs we brought home were in a puddle located in a driveway. We have never actually witnessed a successful brood emerge from this puddle, and we have seen them crushed under careless tires. Due to this, we are annual egg nabbers, though we take only a fraction of them. If you find yourself to be a frog parent from a similar set of circumstances, let me share some of our hard-earned knowledge. 
We take some water from the puddle. Be aware that there will be hitchhikers, including lots of mosquito larvae, so plan accordingly. We put a screen on our tank. Only add water from safe sources. We generally collect rainwater. Never add chlorinated tap water. Grab some local habitat. We try to simulate their environment, adding fallen leaves and twigs, clumps of dirt and moss, and so forth. As they begin to develop legs and lungs, they must have solid ground to crawl out and rest on, so create a full habitat, not just water. Also, they like a little shelter, and we're meant to nibble on algae and other plant matter. After your eggs have hatched, you'll need to provide food. Ours thrive on minced spinach and tropical fish flakes. Sprinkle in just a little at a time and stop when they quit munching or their water will turn dirty with all the rotting excess food. If it gets smelly, scoop out some of the old water and replace it with fresh. Also, remove the old egg sacs after a bit as there's not enough space to let them decompose in a tank. I personally bring the frogs in at night when it's cool, but that's likely just the mama in me. Be sure to keep them where they have both sun and shade, though, to help them stay at a comfortable temperature. So, who do you think Nye will meet in March? The Little Green Hills series can be found at extraschooling.com on the bookstore page. Don't forget that every book comes with a free PDF download with extension materials to learn more. Thanks for listening.